0: Blog Talk Radio But up, 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 Expanding my ability Love, peace, joy, life, life Love, relationship If you change your mind first Then your life will follow I oh.
1: I moved to America 12 years ago uh, with my wife, Terry, and our two kids. Actually, truthfully, we moved to Los Angeles. (laughs) Thinking we were moving to America, but anyway, it's it's a short plane ride from Los Angeles (laughs) to America. Um, I got here 12 years ago, and when I got here, I was told various things, like... Americans don't get irony. (laughs) Have you come across this idea? It's not true, I've traveled a whole length and breadth of this country, I have found no evidence that Americans don't get irony. It's one of those cultural myths, like the British are reserved. (laughs) I don't know why people think this. We've invaded every country we've encountered. It's not true Americans don't get irony, but I, I just want you to know that that's what people are saying about you behind your back. You know, as you, when you leave living rooms in Europe, people say, thankfully, nobody was ironic in your presence. <laughs> but I knew that Americans get irony when I came across that legislation, no child left behind. <laughs> because whoever thought of that title gets irony. <laughs> don't they? Because, because it's leaving millions of children behind. Now I can see that's not a very attractive name for legislation. Millions of children left behind, I can see that. What's the the plan? Well, we propose to leave millions of children behind and and here's how it's going to work and it's it's working beautifully. In some parts of the country, 60% of kids drop out of high school. In the Native American communities, it's 80% of kids. If we halved that number One estimate is it would create a net gain to the U.S. economy over 10 years of nearly a trillion dollars. From an economic point of view, this is good math, isn't it, that we should do this. It actually costs an enormous amount to mop up the damage from the dropout crisis. But the dropout crisis is just the tip of an iceberg. What it doesn't count are all the kids who are in school but being disengaged from it who don't enjoy it, uh, who don't get any real benefit from it. And the reason is, not that we're not spending enough money, America spends more money on education than most other countries, class sizes are smaller than in many countries, and there are hundreds of initiatives every year to try and improve education. The trouble is, it's all going in the wrong direction. There are three principles on which human life flourishes, and they are contradicted by the culture of education under which most teachers have to labor and most students have to endure. The first is this, that human beings are naturally different and diverse. Can I ask you, how many of you have got children of your own? Okay. Or grandchildren? How about two children or more? Right. And the rest of you have seen such children. small people wanting about. I will make you a bet and I'm confident I will win the bet if you've got two children or more I bet you they are completely different from each other aren't they aren't they you would never confuse them would you like which one are you remind me you know, my... your mother and I are going to introduce some color coding systems so we don't get confused Education under No Child Left Behind is based on, not diversity, but conformity. What schools are encouraged to do is to find out what kids can do across a very narrow spectrum of achievement. One of the effects of No Child Left Behind has been to narrow the focus onto the so-called STEM disciplines. They're very important. I'm not here to argue against science and math. On the contrary, they're necessary, but they're not sufficient. A real education has to give equal weight to the arts, the humanities, to physical education. An awful lot of kids... Sorry, thank you. One estimate uh, in America currently is that something like 10% of kids, getting on that way, um, are being diagnosed with various conditions uh, under the broad uh, title of uh, Attention Deficit Disorder, ADHD. I'm not saying there's no such thing. I just don't believe it's an epidemic like this. If you sit kids down, hour after hour, doing low-grade clerical work, <laughs> don't be surprised if they start to fidget, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, children are not, for the most part, suffering from a psychological condition. They're suffering from childhood, you know? And, And I know this because I spent my early life as a child. I went through the whole thing. (laughs) Kids prosper best with a broad curriculum that celebrates their various talents, not just a small range of them. And by the way, the arts aren't just important because they improve math scores. They're important because they speak to parts of children's being which are otherwise untouched. The second... (laughs) Thank you. Um, The second... Uh, principle that drives human life and flourishing is curiosity. If you can light the spark of curiosity in a child, they will learn without any further assistance very often. Children are natural learners. It's a real uh, achievement to put that particular ability out or to stifle it. Um, Curiosity is the kind of engine of achievement. Now the reason I say this is because Uh, One of the effects of the current culture here, if I can say so, has been to deprofessionalise teachers. There is no system in the world, or any school in the country, that's better than its teachers. Teachers are the lifeblood of the success of schools. But teaching is a creative profession. Teaching properly conceived is not a delivery system. You're not there just to pass on received information. Great teachers do that. But what great teachers also do is mentor, stimulate, provoke, engage. You see, in the end, education is about learning. If there's no learning going on, there's no education going on. And people can spend an awful lot of time discussing education without ever discussing learning. The whole point of education is to get people to learn. Uh, um, A friend of mine, an old friend, actually very old, he's dead. Um, That's that's as old as he gets, I'm afraid. So... (laughs) But a wonderful guy, um, he was uh, a wonderful philosopher. He used to talk about the difference between the task and achievement senses of verbs. You know, you can be engaged in the activity of something but not really be achieving it. Like dieting. (laughs) It's a very good example, you know. There he is, he's dieting. Is he losing any weight? Not really. Teaching is a word like that. You can say, there's Deborah, she's she's in room 34, she's teaching. But if nobody's learning anything, she may be engaged in the task of teaching, but not actually fulfilling it. The role of a teacher is to facilitate learning. That's it. And part of the problem is, I think, that the uh, the dominant culture of education has come to focus on not teaching and learning, but testing. Now, testing is important. Standardized tests have a place. But they should not be the dominant culture of education. They should be diagnostic, they should help. Um, If I go for a medical examination, I want some standardized tests. I do. You know, I want to know what my cholesterol level is compared to everybody else's on a standard scale. I don't want to be told on some scale my doctor invented in the car. Your cholesterol is what I call level orange. (laughs) Ready? Is that good? We don't know. But all that should support learning. It shouldn't obstruct it. Which of course it often does. So in place of curiosity, what we have is a culture of compliance. Uh, Our children and um, teachers are encouraged to follow kind of routine algorithms rather than to excite that power of imagination and curiosity. And the third principle is this, that human life is inherently creative. It's why we all have different resumes. We create our lives, and we can recreate them as we go through them. It's the common currency of being a human being. It's why human culture is so interesting and diverse and dynamic. I mean, other animals may well have imaginations and creativity, but it's not so much in evidence, is it, as ours. I mean, you may have a dog, you know, and your dog may get depressed. You know, but it doesn't listen to Radiohead, does it? And, <laughs> you know, sit staring out the window with a bottle of Jack Daniels. And, and, and you say, would you like to come for a walk? He said, no, I'm fine. No. <laughs> you go, I'll wait, I'll go. But take pictures. We all create our own lives through this restless process of imagining alternatives and possibilities and what one of the roles of education is to awaken and develop these powers of creativity. Instead, what we have is a culture of standardization. Now, it doesn't have to be that way. It really doesn't. Finland um, regularly comes out top in math, science and reading. Now, We only know that's what they do well at because that's all that's being tested currently, that's one of the problems of the test They don't look for other things that matter just as much The thing about the work in Finland is this They don't obsess about those disciplines, they have a very broad approach to education which includes humanities, physical education, the arts Second, um, there is no standardized testing in Finland I mean there's a bit but it's not what gets people up in the morning, it's not what keeps them at their desks. And the third thing, is, I was at a meeting recently with some people from Finland, actual Finnish people, and, uh, and so somebody from the American system was saying to the people in Finland, what do you do about the dropout rate in Finland? And they all looked a bit bemused and said, well, we don't have one. Why would you drop out? If people are in trouble, we get them quite quickly and help them and we support them. Now, People always say, well, you know, you can't compare Finland to America. No, I think there's a population of around five million in Finland. But you can compare it to a state in America. Many states in America have fewer people in them than that. I mean, I've been to some states in America, and I was the only person there. (laughs) Really. Really, I I was asked to lock up when I left. And... (laughs) what all the high-performing systems in the world do is currently what is not evident sadly across the systems in America, I mean as a whole. One is this, they individualize teaching and learning. They recognize that it's students who are learning and the system has to engage them their curiosity, their individuality and their creativity that's how you get them to learn. The second is that they attribute a very high status to the teaching profession. They recognize that you can't improve education if you don't pick great people to teach and if you don't keep giving them constant support and professional development. Investing in professional development is not a cost, it's an investment. Every other country that's succeeding well knows that, whether it's Australia, Canada, uh, South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, or Shanghai. They know that to be the case. And the third is, they devolve responsibility to the school level for getting the job done. You see, there's a big difference here between going into a mode of command and control in education. That's what happens in some systems. You know, Central governments decide, or state governments decide, they know best and they're going to tell you what to do. The trouble is that education doesn't go on in the committee rooms of our legislative buildings. It happens in classrooms and schools. And the people who do it are the teachers and the students. And if you remove their discretion, it stops working. You have to put it back to the people. There is wonderful work happening in this country. Uh, but I have to say, it's happening in spite of the dominant culture of education, not because of it. It's like people are sailing into a headwind all the time. And um, the, the reason I think is this, that Many of the current policies are based on mechanistic conceptions of education. It's like education is an industrial process that can be improved just by having better data. And somewhere in, I think, the back of the mind of some policy makers is this idea that if we fine tune it well enough, if we just get it right, it'll all hum along perfectly into the future. It won't, and it never did. The point is that education is not a mechanical system, it's a human system. It's about people. People who either do want to learn or don't want to learn. Every student who drops out of school has a reason for it, which is rooted in their own biography. They may find it boring. They may find it irrelevant. uh, They may find that it's at odds with the life they're living outside of school. There are trends, but the stories are always unique. I was at a meeting recently in Los Angeles of, they're called alternative education programs. These are programs designed to get kids back into education. They have certain common features. They're very personalized, they have strong support for the teachers, close links with the community, and a broad and diverse curriculum, and often programs which involve students outside school as well as inside school. And they work. What's interesting to me is these are called alternative education. <laughs> You know? And all the evidence from around the world is if we all if we all did that, there'd be no need for the alternative. So I think we have to embrace a different metaphor. We have to recognise that it's a human system and there are conditions under which people thrive, and conditions under which they don't. We are After all, organic creatures. And the culture of the school is absolutely essential. Culture is an organic term, isn't it? Not far from where I live, there's a place called Death Valley. Death Valley is the hottest, driest place in America, and nothing grows there. Nothing grows there because it doesn't rain, hence Death Valley. In the winter, of 2004, it rained in Death Valley. Seven inches of rain fell over a very short period and in the spring of 2005 there was a phenomenon the whole floor of Death Valley was carpeted in flowers for a while. What it proved is this that Death Valley isn't dead it's dormant Right beneath the surface are these seeds of possibility waiting for the right conditions to come about. And with organic systems, if the conditions are right, life is inevitable. It happens all the time. You take an area, a school, a district, you change the conditions, give people a different sense of possibility, a different set of expectations, a broader range of opportunities, you cherish and value the relationships between teachers and learners, you offer people discretion, be creative and to innovate in what they do and schools that were once bereft spring to life. Great leaders know that. The real role of leadership in education, and I think it's true at the national level, the state level, at the school level, is not and should not be command and control. The real role of leadership is climate control. Creating a climate of possibility. And if you do that, people will rise to it and achieve things that you completely did not anticipate, and couldn't have expected. There's a wonderful quote from Benjamin Franklin. There are three sorts of people in the world. Those who are immovable, people who don't get it, they don't want to get it, they're not going to know anything about it. There are people who are movable, people who see the need for change and are, are prepared to listen to it. And there are people who move, people who make things happen. And if we can encourage more people, that will be a movement. And if the movement is strong enough, That's, in the best sense of the word, a revolution. And that's what we need. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much.
2: Independent thinkers. This show is a space for families who are homeschooling or thinking about homeschooling. We'll explore alternative teaching methods, federal and state homeschooling laws, and most importantly, this show is a platform where families can inspire one another on how to raise independent thinkers. I'm your host, Beth Shiba Omani, Montessori educator, homeschooling consultant owner of Homeschool Guide, LLC, and mother of two. Let's get started. Hope you're all having a wonderful Sunday. Today is September the 27th, 2020, and this is the Raising Independent Thinker Show. I'm your host, Beth Sheba. Hope your week is going well. I've had a pretty blessed week, no complaints. So you just listened to Ken Robinson, who is a dynamic motivational speaker and author from the UK. He actually passed away um, last month at the age of 70, and I wish I could have met him in person before he passed. I used to listen to his talks about education many years ago, and the things that he said really, really have resonated with me. You know, as an educator, he opened up my eyes on how desperate we're in need of a revolution in our educational system and not just going for these initiatives or ideas, but a true change within the system. Changing the role of the teacher, the thought that teachers should be in control at all times and be lecturing while a child sits there expected not to move is absolutely ridiculous when we know that promoting movement can increase memory, attention, language, perception, and so on, but we still get confused when our kids are jumping all over the place and can't seem to keep still. That's because they were not made to keep still. Time has shown us that this model is just not working. There's more and more violence going on in today's public schools. More and more children are being diagnosed with ADHD and if things don't change, it will only get worse. The role of the teacher is to facilitate learning, and there's so many ways that teachers can do this. There were only a few times um, I know in my life that I can remember positive experiences in how I learned in school. There was actually one time when one of my middle school teachers was brave enough to take the entire class outside and practice role playing while we read the story of Othello. Now, this this is in the inner city of the Bronx and there were not really many places we could go, but he actually took the chance to take us out on the on the um football field and i remember that because at the time i thought it was such a privilege to be able to learn something outdoors isn't that isn't that something a privilege to go outside that sounds so deprived but for me you know learning was best when it was interactive i had the ability to move and the freedom to express myself i feel our society has pressed for conformity way too long, and ignored the natural creativity that is instilled in every single child. And honestly, I feel that change has to come, and will come, whether we want it or not. The fact that so many people have now decided to homeschool their children, and teachers are having to make changes due to COVID, I believe that it's going to cause a shift and a reconstruction of our entire educational system. And honestly, I can't wait to see what's going to you know, happen a few years from now and what the system is going to look like. So when you get a chance, please listen to Ken Robinson's talks. How to Escape Education's Death Valley is a really good talk on YouTube, as well as Do Schools Kill Creativity? Um, He also has a few books that I myself want to check out. So today, I'm finishing off the series of homeschooling methods. I'll be discussing the Charlotte Mason approach, and maybe I'll pick up on learning about more methods later in the future because there's so many others to still explore so before we talk about charlotte mason i wanted to talk um, a little about the webinar coming up the webinar is called how to homeschool for nationals and it'll be led by akeem and myself this webinar is for anyone interested in homeschooling and wanting to learn the basics of how to start you can start homeschooling whether they are enrolled in school or not. And if you are thinking of taking your child out of the system, we'll be going over the processes of withdrawing, um, submitting the letter of intent. I'll be discussing examples of homeschooling methods, how to keep records, and discussing laws about standardized testing. Um, you know, many people don't know that there are multiple ways to test your child. So we'll be talking about um, various ways of testing. So please go to home-schoolguide.com, and you should see a link called New Webinar. Once you click that link, um, you can find more information. Again, home-schoolguide.com. So I am going to take a short break, and when I come back, I'll be focusing on the Charlotte Mason Be right back.
3: I'm Sonia Schaefer with Simply Charlotte Mason. I often get asked why I chose the Charlotte Mason method for homeschooling my children. One reason is that I love good books, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was the living books, the literature, the stories of people's lives that I remembered most and that had affected me most as a person. I learned all sorts of life lessons and gained lots of ideas from, for example, the Little House books. I pulled ideas about diligence and family and thrift and even good manners from Laura Ingalls' experiences in those books. And those ideas became a part of me. They helped shape who I am now as a person. But that's not all. I also realized that when I was reading a textbook for school and I came across information about the pioneers, I immediately related that information back to the ideas I already had in my mind from reading about Laura's life. To this day, I don't recall most of what I read in those textbooks. Even though I got excellent grades, which were the symbols that I knew the material, what I remembered is what I read in the living books. And once I realized that it was the literature, the living books, that had the most powerful effect on me, I wanted to tap into that power to educate my children, the power of good literature. Another reason I chose Charlotte Mason is because of her foundational principle that the child is a person. Body, soul, spirit, mind, will, emotions All of these are included in that person and we must respect and educate the child as a whole person, not just the mind. I have a special needs child and I love how Charlotte's methods allow for and even embrace the differences between children. Her methods dovetail beautifully with the way that children naturally learn and yet they're flexible and leave plenty of room for customizing to help each child grow at his or her own pace. Charlotte's emphasis on giving my child living ideas makes sure that I'm feeding my youngest's mind and shaping her life and encouraging her to keep growing as a person even as we progress in academics at her slower pace. And the beauty of it is that I can take those same methods and use them with the older children and make their education as rigorous as I need to. It is a whole-person approach that encourages me to nourish each child as an individual, to focus on helping each one grow as a person. And to me, that is true education. Another reason I chose the Charlotte Mason approach is because I wanted my children to have a good combination of academics, the arts, and life experiences. And Charlotte Mason offers that balance. Mornings are filled with a wide range of intentional, well-thought-out studies that spread a feast of ideas through the good living books and the things around us. But we're done by noon with no homework. So the children have the afternoons free to explore, to play, to pursue their personal interests, and to dig into their hobbies. It's a wonderful balance of teacher-directed and student-led opportunities. Then, too, I was beginning to understand Charlotte's wisdom in having the children form their own relations with what they were learning, rather than my telling them what should be related in their minds. Let me explain. See, when I first heard about the Charlotte Mason method, we had already been homeschooling for a year. That was my oldest kindergarten year. And we had been using a unit study approach. Well, during that year, I discovered that unit studies were not a good fit for us. I was burned out from preparing and overseeing all of the hands-on projects. And on top of that, I discovered that my children could recall a couple of the projects that we had done during those months, but they didn't remember the point of those projects. It was kind of like remembering a commercial, but not remembering the product or the business that the commercial is promoting. Well, they knew we had covered a doorway between our living room and dining room with paper and had drawn on it to make a triumphal arch but they remembered nothing about the Roman emperor that we had studied and for whom the arch was built as a monument. Even though I had tried to connect those two things in their minds, they hadn't made that connection. And I realized the problem was that they had not formed their own personal relation with that emperor or his life. They had not gotten any ideas of their own from his life story. So when I heard that Charlotte Mason encouraged the children to make their own relations rather than my trying to connect all the dots, I knew that this was the flavor for us. And in the years since then, I've seen for myself how effective it is for the child to make her own relations with what she's learning and to draw her own connections between them because that's when learning really sticks. I could go on and on, but let me just mention two more quick reasons that I chose Charlotte Mason. First, her emphasis on habits. Charlotte understood the power of good habits in a person's life, and she encouraged parents to make habit training a part of the children's education as a person. But what is brilliant to me is how her school methods were designed to reinforce those good habits, too. For example, one of the reasons we can be done with schoolwork by noon is because her methods reinforce the habits of full attention and best effort. You can get a lot done in a short time if you give full attention and best effort. And then last, one of the main reasons I chose the Charlotte Mason approach for our homeschool is because I wanted my children to love learning for the rest of their lives. I know too many people who went through a traditional textbook-style education and couldn't wait for graduation because then they would be finished learning. Oh, to me, that is so sad. I wanted my children to know the joy of learning, and it is a joy when you're learning through such wonderful books and allowed the time to marvel at God's creation around you. Such a rich life when we can keep that love of learning alive. So that's why I chose the Charlotte Mason Method. I settled in with that approach, which was a beautiful fit for me and my family. And we have thoroughly enjoyed our homeschool journey for 25 years and counting. If you'd like to learn more about Charlotte Mason and her wonderful methods, I encourage you to visit our website at com. You'll find lots of free resources, including hundreds of blog posts, our weekly podcast, and a variety of free eBooks that you can download and enjoy. Thanks for joining me.
2: Okay, I'm back. That was Sonia Schaefer on why she chose Charlotte Mason. Um, she has a collection of videos on Charlotte Mason, on The Approach, on YouTube. So if you're interested in learning more, you can check those out. So the book I've been reading this week is called Charlotte Mason Education by Katherine Leviston. And I'll be reading parts of the book as I explain um, this approach. So on page five, it reads, Charlotte was born in England in 1842 and was primarily educated by her parents at home. She became orphaned at the age of 16 and she decided at a young age to make education her life's work and held many positions. She wrote geography books that were popular and then wrote home education. This book was well received, which caused Charlotte to establish a training college for governesses at that time she had day schools in england and home schools that were conducted in correspondence style thus the reference to her being called the founder of the homeschooling movement now this is back in the 1800s and at the time england was much like the present-day united states regarding school choices they had boarding schools private schools and public schools They also had governesses, which here in the United States, we call nannies. Like today, it appeared that many parents did not want their children in public schools, and many couldn't afford private school education, so they decided to home educate. Charlotte Mason began this monthly magazine called The Parents Review, and its purpose was to support parents and their governesses in homeschooling. The magazine continued in the late 20th century even though Charlotte passed away in 1923. Now Charlotte Mason covered a lot of subjects in her writings and I'll just talk about the more essential ones. She believed in leading children into self-education, this is done when the adult stays out of the way in the sense of not lecturing. She, be, she believes in relying heavily on narration instead of comprehension questions or workbooks to verify knowledge. Exams are done with a view to see what the child does know, not to expose what they don't know. Um, there is an emphasis on whole books and living books. A whole book is what the author wrote, and a living book is the opposite of what a textbook is. Living books have lives, emotion, people are married and pass away. They are what Charlotte calls clothed in literacy, clothed in literary language. They're not just based on facts. So Charlotte's method consists of short morning lessons with a large variety of subjects. Charlotte says it's the hours that the children spend working, not the quantity of subjects that fatigue them. Their minds can switch to different subjects as often as every 15 to 25 minutes. They have all afternoon and evening free to enjoy being a child, to pursue hobbies and to read they're not assigned homework but you know most homeschoolers don't have homework anyway um charlotte mason uses narration in all school subjects and in all experiences children begin to narrate around the age of six and they do it orally so they basically they're talking and the adults listen and most books may take about three to four months to read And at the end the children will tell the story as they see it Um, this will help them classify and connect the information children begin to write narration around the age of 10 and this can be a long longer process for some children similar to classical education charlotte mason took literature very seriously charlotte believed in exposing children to shakespeare dickens and great poets before they were in the eighth grade. She believed in reading to the child and letting the child read out loud. And if a book is over their reading ability, um, the adult will then read it out loud. Charlotte Mason advises to not wear ourselves out in teaching a child how to write. She assures that they will be able to write if they have good books. They learn punctuation, capitalization by seeing so much well-written literature. So she was very much into um, into literature. Charlotte Mason students cover several European languages rather thoroughly, and French seemed to be a priority, most likely for its close location to England. Um, here in the United States, we choose our foreign language. I think for similar reasons, Spanish is most widely taught um, language in the United States. When it came to math, Charlotte Mason had an interesting viewpoint on math. Every answer is either right or wrong. She wanted her students to study math for its own sake and not as a make for general intelligence and grasp of the mind. She felt that understanding the history of math was just as important as learning the concepts. So children were taught concrete concepts before the abstract. Um, Similar to Montessori, Charlotte uses counters such as dried beads, um, dried beans buttons for counting. When teaching money, she wanted children to use real money, (coughs) which I think that's important. I think children should um, be definitely using real money that's the way we we need to learn um and as far as the arts charlotte believed greatly in music and art appreciation reading about great composers and artists was a major part of her curriculum learning musical instruments her favorite being the piano was something that she encouraged from all of her students so the last subject i'll talk about is history which charlotte felt was not taught appropriately in school um, Charlotte's students were taught history in chronological order. They chose interesting books to explore. They used literature, plays, novels, essays, biography, and poetry to learn about a certain time period. She believed if, if you spent a whole year learning about one man, you would really be learning about a whole nation and the whole time period he lived in. Okay, I'm gonna stop here. Um, What I really learned about exploring all these different methods was that they all focused on individualized learning. Also, they all seem to have a whole child approach. And I think it's imperative to research different methods so that you can find what works for you and your child, keeping in mind that every child is different. So there may be views from each method that you take from and use a combination to create your own. So I hope this series of learning about different homeschooling methods has um, educated and inspired someone, and I hope that you all have a wonderful, blessed week. Tune in to next week's show, same day, same time. Be blessed.
0: Traveling these wide roads for so long My heart's been far from you Ten thousand miles gone Oh, I want to come near and give Every part of me But there's blood on my hands And my lips are unclean in my darkness, I remember Mama's words heard to me. Surrender to the good Lord and then wipe your slate clean. Take me to your river. I
3: wanna go. I'll
0: go. I want to know Dip me in your smooth waters I go in As a man with many crops Come up for air As my sins flow down the Jordan Oh, I want to come here and give yeah, you yeah.
3: every part of me.
0: But there's blood on my hands. And my lips are unclean. Take me to your river. I want to go. Oh Go.